And so if you have any ambition for scaling a company or scaling a life, it will require that you embrace failure as the route to do it. And the information that comes from those failures as the things that will afford you the focus and direction for where you need to grow. Welcome, everybody, to The Chris Harder Show, where we are making you unapologetic about your pursuit of success, knowing that when good people like you make good money, they can then do great things. My name is Chris Harder, and several times per week, I will bring you epic guests, solo episodes, and every single tool, trick, and skill set you need to grow your business, grow your money mindset, and to grow your wealth to levels that you have never reached before. I've ended up in a unique place in life where I've got the experience, the connections, and all of the secrets that it takes to be successful. And I'm lifting the curtain to reveal it all to you in an effort to help put you in a position of abundance so great that you can then be as generous as possible. So let's lock arms and let's get started. Hey, everybody, welcome back to The Chris Harder Show, where we absolutely believe that both generosity and prosperity can and must coexist. I'm going to sit down with a good friend of mine today, Dave Hollis, and we're going to jam on all things courage. He's got a brand new book out called Built Through Courage, except this is not going to be your typical interview where you hear the same stories over and over again when somebody has a book coming out. No, we're going to talk a lot about his separate identities. Like, How does he identify as a partner? How does he identify as a father? How does he identify as a businessman or entrepreneur? And how does he identify as a public figure? Then we're going to talk about some very specific times that he and I have had to to dig up courage to move from corporate America to entrepreneurship or from one version of entrepreneurship into another one as I'm pivoting right now. I'm telling you, this is going to be one of the most empowering, one of the most exciting interviews that you could possibly listen to between Dave and I. So get ready, listen up, take some notes. And by the way, don't forget, you can text me the word daily if you want daily inspiration, if you want daily courage, because every single morning I wake up, all right, Monday through Friday, if we're really being honest, but Monday through Friday when I wake up, I send out a positive business perspective or a money mantra of the day. I text it right to you on your phone so that you can choose the set of lenses you want to see the rest of the day through. And it's a freaking game changer. It's totally free. It's something that my wife suggested that I should do uh, because I wake her up to a mantra every day. She goes, why don't you wake everyone else up to a mantra every day? This really helps. And that's what I've been doing for months now to thousands and thousands and thousands of you. So if you want me to text you first thing when I wake up and make sure you can choose a positive set of lenses to see the day through, text me the word daily to 310-421-0416. Again, text me the word daily to 310-421-0416. All right, guys, get ready. Listen up because we're about to bust through and build some courage muscles for you right now. All right, Dave, my friend, welcome to the show. Chris, thank you for having me. So good to be here. You know, you and I were just chatting offline that you're in this sprint right now where you're talking to anyone and and everyone about the book and, and you're so excited about it. And you were saying that you've got this fuel inside of you right now because you're so excited about this message. You're so excited about this movement. And it's almost pushing you to the point where you didn't get pretty tired once in a while, but it's also fueling you to keep going. What is it that's making you so excited? Well, I think I've had this recognition in this journey and certainly in the, in the writing of the book, but also just like in the connection to the work and the way that I feel about talking about it. And that is, I have like 20 years in entertainment. I loved the work that I did until I realized a thing that I didn't know for so long in that journey. And that is, I kept climbing this ladder. Every rung I climbed, I thought, nope, this is going to be the rung. This is the one 
where I'm going to feel that thing you're supposed to feel that the, like the carrot that had been dangled, the promise of once you get to this place, then you're going to feel connected to purpose. You're going to feel connected to fulfillment. You're going to have like that thing that makes you feel peace when you were falling asleep at night. And I had a lot of pride for a lot of the work I was doing, but I now have a recognition that for almost 20 years of time, I was climbing the wrong ladder. Yeah. And I find myself now excited at the point of like sometimes being sleepless in how excited I get about it or uh, pushing myself, as I was saying offline, like to the point of, Dave, you probably need to slow down. This is a marathon, not a sprint. Don't burn yourself out because I am connected to this reality that, oh, I'm climbing the right ladder. I'm finally in a space where I feel like the work that I do and the gifts I was given are aligned. And it's hard to not be excited. It's hard to not want to run as fast as you can once you find yourself in that kind of a spot. It's interesting because I could totally identify uh, before you and I knew each other, I used to be in banking. I was with HSBC. Same thing. Flew up through the ranks and I was addicted to climbing the ladder. My, enti- my entire identity was around what was my title? How many people did I lead? You know That type of thing. And it becomes a real addiction. And I knew internally that I was staying there just because I had momentum, but not because I really wanted to be there. Now, I know you left Disney a handful of years ago. I was forced out of HSBC when we had the recession. I think yours was more voluntary, if I remember correct. Yeah. How do people know if they're climbing the right ladder or not? Well, I mean, for me, it came in an unconventional conversation in my backyard with my kids where... Just around the time I turned 40, I'm asking some bigger existential questions of why I'm on this planet, why I've been given these gifts. And at the time, because of the collection of intellectual property and the strength of my team and leadership, I was getting straight A grades on tests that I wasn't studying for. And so uh, I'd been in this weird spot where like, to the outside world, this job I had as head of sales was the dream job. And I didn't have a corresponding feeling of satisfaction or fulfillment in being in what everyone told me would make me happy. So my kids and I are out back. We're playing this game. Kids always uh, played with me, which was ask dad anything. They were always (laughs) looking for something gross to dive into. But on this particular night, nine, seven, and four, my seven-year-old asks me a simple but profound question. As it turns out, he asks, uh, hey, dad, what are you most afraid of? And Out of my mouth, though he's looking for tarantulas or scorpions, out of my mouth falls, not living up to my potential. And I don't know that I had consciousness of this being my greatest fear or that it was a thing that I was even like connecting to my unfulfillment. But now that it was out of my mouth, I saw something I couldn't unsee. And in having it now out in the open, I also recognized that I was in real time living into my greatest fear. Because uh, as much as my job was a great job and it provided well for our family and it did afford me access and status and a whole host of things that I had been promised would make me feel certain ways because the team was so strong and those films from Marvel, Disney, Pixar, and Lucas were so strong and all of the things that made the job great. Um, They were also the things that after the learning curve, I had been in the job for seven years at the time. You know, those first three years, the learning curve was extraordinary and it was fulfilling. And after that learning curve was beat back, the relationship with filmmakers were made, the leverage that I had with the customers we were selling films to established didn't take as much work to do well. And 
that dissonance between effort or learning and my being recognized as doing good was complicit in why I felt the way that I did. I wasn't living into or using my potential. And so once I saw it, it was a catalyst for action. Like now that I knew I had to do something about it, and as much as it was unconventional, the decision to leave was one of the only things I could do, right? Like I, and I went into the company, like asking each of the business heads if there were opportunities outside of this thing that I was doing well in. Um, and when there wasn't, it required that I leave. And it was hard. Uh, interestingly, I thought at the time that the decision to leave was the hard decision. It turned out it was the beginning of a string of very difficult decisions because just because you decide to choose change, it doesn't mean that it's easy necessarily once you get into the choppy waters that are required to uh, endure outside of something that has been normal or comfortable or safe. Dave, I really want to take a minute to talk about this because you know your new book called Built Through Courage it takes an extreme amount of courage to leave a situation that is not just good, but pretty damn great, pretty darn fruitful. You're getting a lot of recognition. You're getting those dopamine hits. You've got a lot of importance. It kind of checks all the superficial boxes. And yet you weren't living up to your potential. But not everybody would have made the same decision as you because it takes extreme courage to walk away from something that is really good, but maybe not really good for you. So where did you find that courage? Who'd you turn to? What, how'd you span that bridge? Because most people would have stayed, I think. Well, in a weird way, I created leverage because of who I was becoming in the absence of growth. And, and I'm going to say this, it sounds hyperbolic. It's not my attempt to be dramatic, but I just believe that you're either growing or dying. And in the absence of growth, I was in a season of death. I was truly becoming a version of myself that I did not love when I was by myself. I wasn't as good a dad or as good a husband or as good a man that I know I could have otherwise been. And in the dissonance, lack of integrity between who I could be and who I was showing up as, that space was where my shame and my lack of confidence, my lack of motivation, my self-loathing, all of the things that I don't love about myself festered and grew and so I got to a point where I, I mean, I can remember walking in to the head of the studio at the time to ultimately Bob Iger, the CEO, and, and letting them know, asking, actually I had a contract, had to ask if I might be able to leave, uh, apologize for my needing to walk away from a contract that I'd signed, but also I um, had to explain why. And I can remember the head of the studio at the time, a guy named Alan Horn, 75 at the time, he's just one of the most decent best things happening in Hollywood. He, um, he said, Hey, are you sure? You know, like he, he's speaking from a posture of love because he and I had a great and close relationship, but I think he's also speaking from somewhat a posture of fear. So are you sure? I know Dave, that I have this ability to create provision, sustenance. I can take good care of your family for the rest of your life. And I'm not sure you can do the same for yourself and your family outside of here. Wow. And I know the thing is, he was coming from a place of love. I know, I know that like his heart was in the best place. He just was, he and I were, we were close and I love him. And I said, Alan, this is not about what you can do for me here. This is about what I need to go do for me there. And I need to make this decision, not because of the provision that could otherwise exist here, but because if I don't make this decision, 
I will not even have a life. Like I needed to save my life. And so um, it didn't make sense, right? It didn't make sense to him. It didn't make sense. But Bob Iger's response was just the greatest. He, I walked into his office. He said, is there anything I can do to change your mind? I said, no, my mind is made. And he said, great, sit down, tell me about it. I'd love to cheer you on as you go. Oh, that's if you're cool. taking notes as a leader, it was like the greatest response you could ever have yeah. from someone who you respect, but also hope will understand an, a, a decision that's hard to understand. He was so, so great. But the, re- the reality is I had to make a choice that most of the people in my circle, people I love the most or crave love from the most, most of them represented their concern, their worry of me making a choice that made sense to me, but, but not to them. Yeah. And that's often part of where courage comes in is the willingness to be courageous enough to make a choice that you know is for you, but may not make sense to them. Um, and most of the people, by the way, that were pushing back, whether it was a boss or a parent or whatever, um, their, their, again, their love as they represented it was in so many ways, their fear disguised as love, their limiting beliefs, their, you know, generation that they were born into, their not understanding your purpose and the way that they maybe have different values. And so um, you have to be comfortable and courageous enough to believe in that instinct, that knowing, that gut that says, this is your thing and it's time. This is already such a gift for so many listeners. I know a lot of people listening right now. I, I see it in the DMs, the whole nine yards. They are already in transition from, let's say, corporate to entrepreneurship, or maybe from one version of entrepreneurship to a complete left turn. You know, like Lori did a couple of years ago when she left self development, went into starting that alcohol brand. Uh, and so you're already empowering people to to make the decisions that don't necessarily make sense on paper that everyone else would tell you is a no brainer, but the ones that really fit the identity who you want to become, not who you've been forced into being. I know your book deals a lot with identity. So I thought it'd kind of be fun to break down a few different identities and see how you identify right now in a handful of specific areas of life. Are you down? Yep. Let's go. All right. We're going to start with a real easy one. You mentioned your kids. I love watching you uh, you know, as a father online. Uh, it's goals. You know, Lori and I are, are going down that path trying to have kids. And, and I would love to wake up and be the dad that I see you being. So how would you describe your identity as a father? Well, my kids, I, I, it's interesting as uh, Heidi and I have uh, been in this relationship, getting to know each other. We're playing this card game. You draw a card. There's a blank sometimes that you have to fill in. One of the ones recently was kids are, and my answer is kids are legacy, right? Like my kids inevitably will be the torchbearers of whatever it is that I model for them or teach them or through my decision to be courageous and walk toward my calling, maybe they have now the permission to be courageous and walk toward theirs. Um, but I am first. I mean, the thing I would identify first in like, who are you, Dave? I'm, I'm the father to four kids. And I, as the dad of these three boys and a girl, uh, am not uh, a one-size-fits-all dad for each of them. Though so I think coming into fatherhood, if there was a mistake that I made, I thought, well, I'm just going to parent all of them in a unilateral kind of way. They're all going to get the same me. Consistency wins. No, my kids are wired wildly differently. They are interested in and passionate for completely different things. They have different love languages. They need different things. They think in different ways. And so um, the best part of, I think, how I try to show up for my kids is I try to show up for them individually in the way that they need to be met. And that Yes, there are some universal truths to 
the way that we create boundaries or the way that we hold a standard or the things we expect, but also to my oldest son who loves musical theater and my second son who loves baseball and my third son who loves the outdoors and my daughter who loves dance, I become the dad who loves musical theater and sits in the stands at baseball and will endure camping even though I don't love it and shows up at dance. Because that's where the best version and most authentic and true versions of themselves present. And to be seen and supported and celebrated as yourself is part of what I think will allow these kids to become the very, very best version, confident, courageous versions of themselves when time is done. That's awesome. What a cool answer. Next identity. You ready? Yep. How would you describe your identity as a romantic partner now? I know that you've been through a couple of very public relationships. And sometimes that can be tough when the outside is looking in and, and trying to you know, tell you how they see you as a romantic partner. What's your identity as a romantic partner? Interesting question. My goodness. I mean, the thing I aspire to be, if there was a thing that maybe uh, is, is born out of learning from the end of a relationship and how I want to make sure that I think differently about the next is... I am, if nothing else, authentically and completely me, right? Like, I think the thing that each of us want more than anything in life is this ability for us to be seen as our true and complete selves. And the hope, of course, is that you find someone who sees all of you and is like, this is my person. Uh, But as a person who is recovering from so much people pleasing in my life and something that, you know, each of Rachel and I have talked plenty about in codependence. I think there were times where I was not my best advocate for intimacy because of my interest in keeping someone else happy because I wasn't presenting as me, but a version of who I thought they, she needed me to be. And what I'm interested in is intimacy. I'm interested in someone connecting with me and not some contorted or masked version of who I think I'm meant to be or supposed to be to get love. I want someone to see me, all of me, good parts, bad parts, the in-between parts, and say, you know what? You're my kind of person. You're you know, a little bit nerd, a little bit freak, a little bit weirdo, a little bit awesome, a little bit love. You're my like, kind of weird. You're, all my, you're my kind of weird, right? And so if I'm anything right now, and like the beauty, I will give Heidi credit. Like she ends up actually being very much the same way. Um, You know, I get to see all of her. She gets to see all of me. And there are plenty of things that you're just like, oh my goodness, I can't believe that this comes with all this mosaic of awesome. Um, But I've never felt so seen. And that is, I think, the thing that all of us on some level hope that we might be fully seen and loved for who we are, not who we think we have to be. Now, what a great answer. Romantic relationships, and let's just throw friendships. So any relationships of any kind. Sure. I think the ultimate goal should be that you can be your absolute nerdiest, most vulnerable self and feel safe and loved when you're that version. And if you can find that, it's the best. Completely agree. I love it. Okay, next identity. How would you describe your identity in business now? We already heard about the the Disney days. How would you describe your, your identity in business now? So what's interesting is I, in the aftermath of uh, Change That Chose Me, this like transition out of having worked with Rachel in this business we were growing and this identity I had as husband to her, uh, not working with her any longer, left this like blank piece of paper for me to fill out, terrifying and exhilarating 
more terrifying at the beginning than it is exhilarating. But um, one of the big questions I had to ask, and I would challenge any listener to ask, if you find yourself struggling a little bit with this question of identity in, in, in vocation, uh, I asked this question, who did I want to be before I became who I've become? Oh, good question. Who did, right? Who did I want to be at the beginning? And I think it's important because so often we start our journey with this passion and excitement for what we know is already inside of us, lights us on fire. We're going to like think about what we're good at and what we have passion for. And then along the way, there are things that just inevitably change the way we chase what we chase or we see a carrot and we think that carrot is, okay, just for the short term, I'm going to put aside, I'm going to mute, I'm going to turn the volume down on my own passion because this is going to get me ahead just for a second, right? And before you know it, five years and then 10 years and then three promotions and two other jobs. And next thing you know, you've become known as the person who works in this space or has expertise here or has status in this industry. And it's hard to shake it. And so the beauty for me of having left Disney for entrepreneurship is that I already went through such a significant identity shift that having been known as Dave, the Disney guy who at Thanksgiving was asked by all the relatives to tell a story of something that happened at work or started every conversation at you know a cocktail party describing what I did before I even allowed them to know me without that Disney modifier. When it was gone, it was there was some freedom in being able to redefine who I am and what I am. But I went back to the beginning and I happened to, as I was going through this exercise, have this godlike moment where I was sat on a plane next to Dan Rather, which is important for this story only in that, and as a sign of how hard it was for me to find a girl that wanted to make out with me as a child, <laughs> uh, as, as a young boy, I, um, I had Dan Rather as my childhood hero. Like, oh I just God. wanted to be Dan Rather. Like, that That's was amazing. my goal, my train. And so here I am uh, in my early 40s, sat on a plane next to Dan Rather in the midst of who am I? Who am I supposed to be? What would I describe myself? How would I answer Chris's question when he asks this? So we had like a two-hour conversation. Like I broke every plane protocol, indulged. He was gracious. And I got off the plane and I had this recognition that, wow, who I wanted to be before I became who I've become was a reporter. Like I was the guy at 19 who had the job on the broadcast desk doing the news at Pepperdine University. I was the guy who had a DJ slot at 2 a.m. because it didn't matter what time it was. I just wanted to be in front of that microphone. It lit me up and I loved it. And as much as now, this job that I have is hard to explain to my grandma Lee, who's 99 and wants to ask every time I see her if I have a career, (laughs) should we be worried? Do you have a job? The answer that I give her is I'm a reporter. I am someone who takes my personal experiences, the things I've learned from people I respect like you and others, and consolidates that kind of messaging to help people through the skills I have in speaking or writing or hosting a podcast that maybe because of the way I report affords them a breakthrough, has them think differently, challenges them to go on a search for other sources of information or dig deeper into how this single thing might be a breadcrumb on a trail that they are meant to go chase after. And so I think of myself as a reporter. I'm a storyteller and a reporter. And um, and it feels again, like I, luckily it's not the news, but it feels like uh, I did when I was 19. I'm excited about 
how this will become the legacy of the life that I leave at the end of time. But it was only something that's been born here in just the last couple of years. What a cool story to have Dan Rather as your childhood hero and then end up sitting next to him on a plane. Like God is the universe. Just funny, right? Just funny. Nuts. There's no way you can explain it. It doesn't make you know rational sense. So you just go with it. And it was honestly, it was such a gift. Completely irrelevant question, but I got to ask, do you still fly commercial ever? All, all the time. Okay. Yes. So when somebody sits next to you and they have their Dan Rather moment, only their Dave Hollis moment, are they supposed to ask you questions for two hours or pretend you're not there? Here's the thing. If that were truly like if, if the role were reversed, I hope that someone would. I tend to, I will say like the Dan Rather moment for me was the ex- wild exception to the rule because I don't normally have a conversation with anyone. I yeah. love sitting on a plane because I get to get some things done or just like escape from whatever is normally happening in the world. But if that were the case, bring it on. Love it. Love it. All right. So let's, let's switch gears a little bit here. Um, I know you talk a lot in the book about worthiness and you've always been a champion of, of worthiness versus accomplishments. I think we tend as a society to think that one is a condition of the other, right? Like worthiness is a condition of accomplishments. And of course, that can be very unhealthy. How do we reconcile and how do we separate those in life so that we can feel worthy regardless of our accomplishments? Man, I I wish that there were like a a framework or an exercise you could walk through, but in some ways it becomes a courageous choice. Like it's just a decision that you have to make. And it might be something that you have to repeat because you have it on your mirror over and over or have it be because of the content that you are consuming that is reminding you of your truth or the people that you have surrounding you that are reminding you of your truth. I, you know, like I grew up, uh, I'm a three on the Enneagram, an achiever. I very much had, if I can memorize the Bible verses or score the goals or become valedictorian then, but not before, Will I be worthy of being loved? Will I then be enough or, 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 or lovable or, or whatever it might be? And it took so much of time in life to like unlearn that muscle memory because it just had existed for so long. I'm enough. I'm worthy. I'm lovable right now. Before I achieve a certain thing, anything, nothing, I am those things. And that is something, again, that just is like, it, it requires the courage to believe that you can stand alone without any modifier, without any status, without anything, and, and believe it. Um, but self-love, like the, the, the act of having the courage to love yourself and be your, cheer, you know, your cheerleader and believe in yourself, trust that voice that sits inside of you, that's one of the most important and difficult pieces of courage that's necessary if you want to fully step toward purpose because the world, trust me, is wired to convince you otherwise. You know, in the social media era, it's all comparison, other people's curated highlight reel relative to your real life, making you feel like they've got something that you don't, or they figured out something that you don't. Everything in marketing, every single message you get in marketing is you're not yet ready. You're not yet whole. You're not yet fixed unless you buy this thing. And we just get bombarded with these messages of lack and scarcity so often that we just start to believe it. And it just takes an intentional act of, no, I am enough, good, and worthy today before I achieve a thing. But often for me, like I know for me, 
it has, it has really come most when I have surrounded myself with people who are willing when I started to fall victim to the voices in my head and that self-doubt that creeps in because of just my humanity. I'm human like anybody else. Uh, if I have somebody in my life who's like, uh, come on, man, you're not believing those lies again, are you? You're not thinking those things. Um, that's been super helpful. And the only other thing that I would say is I, when I, when I was in the midst or the very beginning of, not the midst, but the beginning of divorce, I was really having a hard time with identity generally, like who am I now that I'm not who I've been? And I went on this therapy journey with this thing called internal family systems, IFS, that has been so, so helpful in helping me appreciate the difference between who I am and how I feel, who I am and what I think. And so as self, I now get to look at the things I feel or look at the things I think and recognize that I am not those thoughts. I'm the observer of those thoughts. I'm not those feelings. I'm the one who gets to observe those feelings. And so I've interestingly been able to draw those feelings or thoughts into conversation in a way that sometimes helps me understand what role they believe they're playing and other times allows me to deconstruct them such that they become unbelievable. And so if, if you're, it, it might sound cuckoo, but it has been so, so useful to me, especially with that voice in our head that I think sometimes we just give credit for being real and true. It's not. If we actually as self are able to become in that untethered soul kind of way, the observer of the things that we're thinking, we get to decide which of these things help and don't, which of these things are true or not. And we get to keep the good and we get to let go and be free from the bad. It's interesting. You know, your background is sales and marketing with Disney. And you just yeah. referenced how all of sales and marketing is built to make you think you've got a gap that you need to fill, right? You're not enough or you're not there yet or you're missing this thing or whatever. Otherwise, how do they sell? And it, it affects us the way that we start to feel lack in every area. So how does somebody like yourself who has a brand and who is a you know, sales and marketing person at the core. How should we be selling so that we're not creating lack in other people, but also showing them that our product can help their life? Yeah. I mean, I, I've been doing it in the last handful of weeks in the lead up to the release of the book. And um, I think first, you have to create something that you believe in. Yep. Or you, you know, you have to if, if you're trying to sell something that you don't believe in or that doesn't actually serve the needs of the people that you are selling to, you're going to have a hard time with this, period. But for me, this book ends up being the proudest thing I've ever created in my life, which makes selling a lot easier and doesn't, frankly, feel as much like a sale as much as it feels like me attempting to connect someone who I know will be the beneficiary of this with the thing that can actually help them when they need it most. What, the way I've tried to position it is, hey, I'm going to talk about this because I believe so much in it that if I didn't, I'd be doing a disservice by keeping you from it, right? And by the way, if you decide that this is not for you, it's not the thing that you need, I also can accept that and will gladly say, fantastic. I hope you find the resource that you are looking for. But... I I have so much confidence, and you know, I almost have to like apologize up front, but I I don't want to. Like, hey, I'm sorry if this sounds conceited or arrogant, but I I really feel confident that if someone read this book and did the journaling prompts that it comes with, that there would be 
something in a breakthrough that changes the way they think about their life. Yeah. And yeah. if someone were to come to me, well, I was in the midst of struggle or in like the uh, going through a hard time, and they say, "Hey, I've got a solution. I've got a solution that if you wanted to spend two days, you know, trying to get yourself out of this thing, this is like a fast pass, man. It's a time machine." They'll get you out of the stuck into running at a, at a fuller pace. I, I would jump at the opportunity. And so like when I think about like, oh, could this be that? I think it could. So at least for the people that I'm in community with or as I'm having conversation with them, it's like, hey, I think I've created something that is arguably the best thing I have done in my 25-year career. And I really believe coming out of the season that all of us have in unpredictability and change in the last 18 months, that there's some solution in this that'll act as a time machine to accelerate you getting out of suffering and into abundance. And I, I'd be remiss. I, I would, I would be not doing you service, or you know, there'd be an injustice to not make it available to you. I talk about it through that lens, but I also write in the book, and I have to remind myself of this. Right, I'm not free ice cream. Right, like this is not anything you create. This is not for everybody. And so inevitably, you know, my strengths have to be met and matched with the needs of people. And some people have needs where my strengths are going to definitely be a match. And there are some people that need something different in strengths. That's great. There's a lot of people creating great things out there. So if it's not me, it's somebody else. If what I write isn't for you, that just means that it isn't for you. And and I have to become okay with that. I I joke about it, but like, I don't like Lord of the Rings. (laughs) I don't like after it. Because I don't like Lord of the Rings or The Hobbit doesn't mean that it's not a good movie series. It's not, you know, beloved by millions of people or among the biggest film franchises of all time. Just means I don't like it. And so like they, as the creators of that film, can hear, oh, Dave doesn't like this movie and take it personally. Or they can be like, oh, Dave must not like movies about hobbits or, you know, supernatural things or whatever. And that's the truth. That's just like, I'd rather watch a movie about the CIA or FBI. I'm weird that way. I want it to be grounded in something that's a little more realistic. And that doesn't make it bad. So, you know, if you create something and it's not for someone, it doesn't mean that you should stop creating. It means you need to find the people that it's for. What a great message, Dave. You know, we have to be passionate advocates of things that we believe will make the world a better place. And just because one of those things happens to be born of our head, you know, born from us, doesn't mean that we're supposed to pull back on the passion, Right. The yeah. way that you'd be passionate about, uh, you mentioned, what was the family thing before that helped you, the, the self-development? IFS, yeah, internal family systems. Yes. yes, IFS, right? So the way you were passionate about that, you shouldn't pull back just because the book now is of your creation. So that's a great message to, to, to everybody out there. One last change of direction here. You mentioned before in other inter- interviews that you've had a real aversion to failure and you'd only try to do the things that you knew you could knock out of the park. And you and I, we've had that common thread like you have no idea. That used to be my true MO. It was the, I was either all in and knew I was going to crush it and shine, or I avoided it like the plague and made up valid, and I say that loosely, excuses why, why I'm not trying it. So describe a time, looking back with hindsight being 2020, that you avoided something that you should have tackled simply because you were afraid you wouldn't knock it out of the park. Oh my goodness. I mean, when I transitioned from Disney into entrepreneurship, I, on the fly, was having to face failure at such a clip that I started to become gun shy. I mean, things because of the frequency of 
things, I, I call it fires, like the frequency of fires. Like I came out of this environment <laughs> at the Walt Disney Company where my team was so good at sniffing out smoke that they usually put out fire before it happened. And so as a leader, I was often getting updates more often on how problems were averted before they became problems. And now I found myself in an entrepreneur environment where we were experiencing fire four and five times a day because we'd never been around fire before. So we didn't even have a nose for smoke. And there were at the beginning times when that frequency of failure was so much that I was taking it so personally, having some imposter syndrome around whether I was the right leader for this role. And I started to you know, kind of pull back from chance taking because every time we were doing anything, even if it felt like it was low risk, we still weren't getting it right perfectly. And so it really took me sitting with people who could normalize the frequency of failure for me to see failure as the gift that it ended up being. Like every good decision that came in the scaling of our business was a byproduct of us learning from something that didn't work perfectly the first time we tried it. Every customer service innovation, every product innovation, every system, every like everything was born out of, man, we didn't think about that when we got here. Now that we know because of it not having worked the way we hoped it would, we can implement the structure, the system, the people, whatever it is that are needed. And failure just became the rich source of information that, of course, it ends up being and change the way, reframe the way you think about running toward it as an opportunity to grow as opposed to avoiding it. Uh, if you avoid it, guess what? You're not going to fail, but you're also not going to grow. And so if you have any ambition for scaling a company or scaling a life, it will require that you embrace failure as the route to do it. And the information that comes from those failures as the things that will afford you the focus and direction for where you need to grow. You mentioned in there that uh, you know you were avoiding failure and, and you wouldn't try any of the things if you sniffed out failure. But you also then mentioned that you had to sit with some people that really kind of helped to bridge that gap for you and, and develop that courage muscle, so to speak. Who's one person that stands out that was a great reference when you were building this courage muscle? Well, I mean, the, the, the story I tell in the book is of John Maxwell, who Rachel was speaking at one of his events. Uh, I was kind of like, complaining, for lack of a better word, about this frequency of failure. Am I, John, you master of leadership, the wrong leader for this organization? I, I do appreciate like the game at Disney is different than the game as an entrepreneur. And I'm trying to now put, because of the different game, a different playbook into play. But what is this? And he, um, in a stately and sure kind of way, said, you know what? You can either have two consecutive days without problems, or you can be a small business owner, but you can't. And <laughs> that, that hits real. Right, it hits real. And it's just like that permission to have grace when problems are happening was something that fundamentally changed the way I saw it as an indictment on me not being the right person and more the price of entry for anyone who's interested in scaling a business. Oh, so you're saying that problems happening on the regular are just the way that this works. Okay, I guess then that I can accept that this is how it goes and see how we now learn as much as we possibly can from each of these failures so that we can apply those learnings in the way we're hoping to scale the business. And that was just, it was beautiful. I just like it changed forever the way I thought about the frequency of fires. John Maxwell, what a legend. I love that dude. I know. 
So who's the book truly for? I know it's for anybody that has to start building that courage muscle, who has to shift their identity a little bit. But if you could really say, if you are X, Y, and Z, you need to rush out and grab this thing. Who is that person? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I said, uh, we talked at the beginning, you know, I, I felt like in entrepreneurship, I started climbing the right ladder in, in this work as a reporter that I'm finally in the spot that I'm meant to be. And it doesn't in any way disrespect or take away how much I appreciate the learning that came in the 20 years of entertainment and climbing that ladder. But if anyone is feeling like, man, it should feel better than this. There should be something deeper in fulfillment. I want to be more connected to purpose. What is it all for? I do believe that each of us was given a very unique set of gifts and talents that each of us, you, Chris, me, anyone who's listening, have exclusively been through the experiences that we've been through. We think, feel, uh, love the way that we do and nobody else does, which makes us this limited edition, one of one. There's no one like us today, in the past, or in the future. And with that, there comes an opportunity, a mandate almost, to ask, how might you, because of this intentional design with which you've been placed on this planet, honor the intention of your creator? How do you honor the intention of why you were put here? And if you're currently working or living inside of a world that feels like it's separated from, there's dissonance in truly honoring your gifts or, or having you feel that sense of fulfillment or connection to purpose, well, it's going to take courage because you're going to have to leave some things that you have become comfortable with, probably going to make some people that you were very close to have become very comfortable with who you've been uncomfortable as you step into what you've been called for. You're certainly going to have to face fear because your comfort is surrounded on all sides by fear like a moat that surrounds it. There is no drawbridge. The only way to get to learning, growth, fulfillment, purpose, you have to plow right through your fear. And so courage uh, ends up being that necessary ingredient for you to take that journey. And uh, so I, you know, my hope is if you as a listener are in any way feeling like, man, there's got to be more here, I do believe there is. I believe you were put here on this planet for purpose. I believe that there was absolute intention in you having gone through what you have and being wired the way you are, and that the gifts that you have been given were meant to be given away if you can just create the courage to step into a space that might allow you to do it. And uh, is, is it going to be easy? It is not going to be easy, but it definitely will be worth it. Um, change for sure will be a constant in our lives, whether it's change that you choose or the change that chooses you and your willingness to have courage to, in any season of change, do everything you can to become who you were meant to be. It'll be the difference between feeling great about yourself when you're by yourself or not. So uh, let's go. I'm like, I'm, I get excited about it because it in shows. Part, I find myself finally feeling like I am connected to purpose and this work as a reflection of that is just something I, I just I geek out about. It shows. I, I just want you to know, outside looking at it, it absolutely shows and we can feel that. Built Through Courage was the best place to grab it. You can grab it literally anywhere. Uh, so anywhere books are sold, grab that book. Uh, I am starting, as this uh, podcast will be out, I'll already be in the midst of a book club. So if you grab your book and you want to jump in, Jump in. No matter where we are in the club, we're going to go through 40 consecutive days of, uh, of a book club, dissecting each individual chapter, 
walking through some of the journaling prompts that happen at the end of each of the chapters so that it's both a passive reading or listening experience, but also an active learning experience. And hopefully by the end of reading the book, or going through the book club, you feel like you have been now equipped to step closer to purpose and push past your fear. So valuable. How can we be a part of the book club? Uh, I will have all of the information on my website. It's mrdavehollis.com. So jump over there. There's going to be a place for you to just drop in an email. I'm going to send you a 65-page PDF workbook for free to say, uh, come on down. Let's dive into this and start seeing if we can't conscious some courage in your life. I love it. Listeners, go to the show notes. We'll put a link there uh, as well for you. All right. Well, here's a quick surprise. You don't know I'm going to do this, but to help people be a part of that book club, uh, I'm going to choose 10 random listeners that tag both you and I with a takeaway, right? Like something that truly moved them on Instagram. Uh, I'll choose 10 of them at random and I'll send them a book from our team here. So it's a tiny little itty bitty way that we can help get the book in in a few more hands and and change the world right alongside you. I love that, Chris. Thank you, buddy. I appreciate that. Of course. One last little quick question for you. Uh, I'm going to go all the way back to identity. So we started with identity. Uh, We talk a lot about generosity on the show. Where does generosity play into your identity today? Yeah, I, I have had as a part of previously the Hollis Foundation and now the Dave Hollis Giving Fund, uh, you know, uh, portions of the proceeds of anything that gets created inside of my professional life, always going to try and help those in need. Uh, 10% at a minimum of anything that comes out of the book is going to be going into, in particular, food scarcity, children in foster care and uh, teen and, and, and youth homelessness, uh, three things that have just been a part of uh, my philanthropic giving over time. Um, I've got different organizations that I'm awarding grants to over time and I'm trying to like really invite into and have conversations with the community so that um, the things that I have passion for might also become things that are uh, potential passion projects of people in the community as well. Um, these things also live at mrdavehollis.com as well. And I encourage anyone, if you feel interested or drawn into foster care, teen homelessness, or, or food scarcity that uh, I've got some awesome organizations that I would love to introduce you to who are doing life-changing, world-changing kind of work. I love that. Always love that about your ethos. We share that common ethos. By the way, anytime you have some kind of fundraising function, you know you got to tap on Lori and I. We're always there to support it. I'll do it, brother. I will. I love it. All right, Dave, thanks so much for being on the show. It means the world. It means a ton to the listeners. And uh, just keep keep on doing it with the energy that you're doing it with right now. Because I can tell nothing has meant more to you than this right now. Uh, Thank you, Chris. I appreciate it. Appreciate you, listener. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. And if you loved this episode and know of someone else who is as successful as they are generous, please pass them on to me. It would mean the world to me if you help me get this cause and this message out to as many listeners as I can. So please, if you liked what you heard, it goes a long way if you take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and share this with your friends. I'll be forever grateful. And until the next episode, cheers to your success. 